0: It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Back to the show! Do you read Stephen King? Good news, there's a club for you. The Losers Club. Every Friday, us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. We sink our teeth into each of King's novels, dive deep into the lore, and review every adaptation. Even better, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Will Wheaton, Mary Lambert, Mick Garris, the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network.
2: To all of you sweet pod people out there, I'm your host, Leo Phillips, and this is another edition of This Must Be the Gig. Thank you for tuning in. It's uh, your little backstage pass to the world of live music. And each and every week, we try our bestest, try our hardest to bring you a really fascinating conversation from the beating heart of the live music and performance scene. And what that means is us chatting to musicians, a festival founder, a choreographer, a comedian, an actor, really anyone who is obsessed with performance in the way that we are. But before we dig into this week's fantastic interviews, let's check in with our constant companion here at TMBTG Studios, Engineer Adam. Hello! Hey! What's going on in Engineer Adam's world, apart from harmonizing?
3: Yeah,
0: I've just got that beautiful voice I wanted to share with Thank the world. You. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm here celebrating the release of a new iPod. Oh. I never thought I'd see the day, but we've got a new iPod out in the world. Well, not yet, but soon.
2: Um, You mean like we've stepped into 2009?
0: Exactly. We've because stepped into a brighter past.
2: It's basically an iPhone without the phone, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> yes, but now... All those people who are sick and tired of having to use up space on their phone for music and sure, podcasts. Sure, You got sure, the iPod sure. back, baby.
2: And I was thinking of that the other day. That's exactly what I was thinking of. I have no space. I can't fit any more mm-hmm. photos. I can't fit any more apps. I cannot fit any more podcasts or books. I need to get something else. And I was like, why don't they invent something? <laughs> but really, I feel like if you plan on buying the new iPod. Yes touch yes. what, what is it called ipod yeah. touch the
0: ipod touch 7th gen i
2: have a really good tip yes okay go to amazon.com yes this is not sponsored by the way this is not it hashtag ad no go to amazon.com search iphone 7 it has touch id it's got a much bigger screen it's got cell data and just click buy because this new iPod is basically an, iP- an iPhone 7.
0: <laughs> just without connection to a... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Really. Uh-huh. It's, maybe iPhone 7's a little bit better, actually. Maybe
0: they should release another Zune. Maybe they should just the turn Zune?
2: everybody into computers. Do you remember the Zune? To... I love yeah. the Zune.
0: It was a giant brick with a touch wheel on it. I love my
2: iPod. The old classique. And then I had the Nano.
0: Oh, fancy. <sighs>
2: I used to play solitaire on that boy, <laughs> that bad boy. That was wonderful. I really remember those days. That's funny how the world does the loop, alley-oop-de-oop, what do you yeah. call it?
0: Yeah, oop de loop de loop
2: Um, Because we've now, just like fashions, are yeah. now going backwards in technology. Retro. And they are now realizing that we absolutely need something separate to our lives. So our lives are so busy in this platform that they've created on this phone. Mm-hmm that we now need to have something completely separate. I also would recommend a record player.
0: Well, yes. Ultra retro. I would
2: also recommend having a friend just, again, as I said earlier, Singing become a computer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we could do that too. <laughs> I like too. both
0: of these ideas.
2: And just today, I walked past somebody playing music from his iPhone, just like a boombox.
0: Was he holding it on his shoulder?
2: Sure. Of course he was. This is your, this is, I don't make the rules. This is your day. (laughs) This is your day. Of course he was. Um, But I'm, I'm excited for the conversation to start up again in terms of premiumization because everything is becoming premium and creating another iPod accessory just like they did again. iPhone without the phone is kind of genius to go backwards, but forwards, backward forwards
0: forward backward backward forward back
2: back 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 forward yeah (laughs) so i don't mind it
0: and once you get your new ipod touch seventh generation or your iphone 7 that Lior (laughs) is recommending or your zoom or even just on your phone right now go ahead and leave us a note about how much you love our show on all the social medias at tmbtg pod or at leor phillips l-i-o-r-p-h-i-l-l-i-p-s better yet Leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and we'll shout you out on the show. This week we've got a shout out going to Ballerina Girl <laughs> out in Australia. Oh, cool. Who had this wonderful note divine descriptions and engaging stories. Love listening to Lior's smooth tones and connecting with her on her journey. Thanks again for those wonderful words, Ballerina Girl.
2: That's pretty awesome. Thank you. That's a great superhero name, by the way. I think, <laughs> yeah, I, think I we love should that kind idea. Kind of adopt that. I would watch that Marvel. movie. Marvel, Marvel, you can have the rights to Ballerina Girl.
0: Black Swan, Black Panther crossover.
2: Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Ballerina Girl. That's really lovely. And this week. Is really exciting because we return you to our coverage from the incredible Moogfest in North Carolina with not one, but two chats with insiders who changed the music world and helped bring some of your favorite artists in the world to light. Our first chat this week features the tremendous talent that is Daniel Miller, the founder of one of my favorite record labels, Mute Records. And it's the label that brought the world Depeche Mode, Erasure, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and so many others. Uh, Reach out to me directly if you want to know more.
0: Just a direct list of your favorite mute records.
2: Honestly, I will give you a list and some stories. In our conversation, I spoke with Daniel about seeing his first concerts, what they were, and buying his first Korg 700S and his exploration of the UK music scene in the late 70s and early 80s as a performer and a producer and a label head. And after that, what do we have?
0: We've got a second interview. That's right. This week, we've got two amazing conversations. The second this week is with the producer, composer, and all-around music zealig, Craig Leon. Craig's been seemingly at the intersection of every musical moment in the U.S. since helping to discover seminal punk and no-wave bands like the Ramones, Suicide, and Talking Heads, all bands that are extra special and important Mm -hmm. in this neck of the woods. Uh, you got to sit down with Craig and his partner, psych folk country musician Castle Webb, to talk about Craig's time in CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, his work with Pavarotti, Castle's first-hand experience with Buddy Holly, and Craig's new record, Anthology of Interplanetary Folk Music, Volume 2, which is out now on Revenge International.
2: So, let us not be delayed. This is me, and Daniel, and Craig, and Castle. Enjoy! <laughs>
1: to uh where are we? Durham. I got yeah. here on uh, Thursday evening, yeah, but I was in New York for a couple of days before that. Okay. Yeah.
2: Do you often not know where you are because you're so busy?
1: <laughs> well, I definitely often don't know where I am when I wake up <laughs> in the morning, I thought, you know, so, yeah.
2: I mean, that happens, I suppose, when you get a little, you know, when you have a lot going on. Do yeah. you find that there's certain times in the year where things are a little bit more intense work-wise? Or is there no cycle to what you to what you it's do? There's not really.
1: I mean, not really. It's pretty, because I mean, we're all, from the label point of view, you know, we're always getting, you know, we work around six months up front from mm-hmm. a finished in Uh, from a finished record to release. Okay. So, you know, we're always working ahead, so it's always, yeah, it's always, you know, it goes in fits and starts, but it's generally busy all the time, either with making a record or Mm. selling a record or going to gigs or... Six
2: months doesn't seem too long. Six months seems...
1: Well, that's from the delivery of the final... Oh,
2: right, okay. The
1: final masters and the final artwork. Yes. Because you need a lot of time to set everything up and, you know, because we do Mm -hmm. everything on vinyl and vinyl pressing takes a long time, so you have to kind of...
2: Yeah, make, build
1: that m- in yeah. and
2: make sure that there's but Mona would
1: time. tell you that it's never really six months and it's always a bit of a rush in the end. <laughs> yeah. But the theory Mona's is six nodding months. In the yeah. corner. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but so, do you find in terms of like trends over the last few years that things have started to shift a little in terms of the the creation of a project versus you know, maybe years and years ago, things maybe took either quicker because there was guaranteed radio play or, you know, just in terms of the business of, of, the, of that uh, side?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, the recording side of things has changed completely. I mean, everything's changed. The music has to be good. That's the constant, the same yeah. real constant. Everything else has changed. The ma- how you make the records, how you distribute the records, how you mm. promote the records has changed completely in the last, I don't know, t- 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. you know? Mm. And some of that's really good. And some of it is 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 not so good, or oh, not it's not it's not good. It's just mm. like not so much fun, should we say? Yeah. But um,
2: what are the challenges? That what what doesn't make what, what
1: what? Well, the cha- I mean, the cha- I mean, I think for instance, you know, especially with streaming, it's become very track based rather than album based. There's obviously there's been a reaction to that with with the kind of resurgence of vinyl. But the mm. resurgence of vinyl is great, but it's not as like it's still small in mm. relation to everything else, you know. Mm. I think mm. the the Spotify, the, well, the Spotify mainly, but but the platforms are kind of very track orientated mm. and single orientated. So, for music that people want to be a bit more thoughtful about or put it to get, put it together in a different mm. way, not it's not so easy, you know. People don't listen to albums that much, and I think that's yeah. frustrating for the musicians, you know, and mm. f- and for us because we wouldn't say that our music is album orientated. That sounds really old-fashioned. But, but it
2: is. It's totally yeah. mute. The mute style yeah. is completely front to back. Yeah. I feel.
1: Yeah, those things are, are not in our control particularly. You know, we have to. We have to you adapt. Have to be
2: adaptable. Yeah. 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 How hard is that to navigate in terms of no, making sure that you keep your style and you keep mm. the essence of it, keep the consistency of the music good, and also make sure to cater to how ever changing because hmm. you know spotify could go away tomorrow as well i think people don't realize of that, course, that yeah that library that you've created or it's yeah. not you but people yeah that could go away so how do you yeah. how do you
1: keep um i mean there was always radio okay spotify is kind of the new radio in a yeah, sense totally and we we you know we used to do depending on the artist and the, and the the you know the the kind of the goal for the project we would do radio edits through things mm. like that and we do mm. spotify edits now and we do even shorter Spotify edits for our presentations. <laughs> yeah. When we go in there, we do like,
4: <laughs> oh my God.
1: One of, you know, two minute versions of songs, you know, for, you know. Yeah. But, you know, and that's frustrating, can be frustrating. Uh, and I personally actually quite enjoy that process of mm. editing because I like the idea of um, getting a message across in a short amount of time. You do? Well, I, I, I was, tra- you know, I trained, I I st- tr- studied film and TV. And my first job, when I left uh, college, was working in a, in a company that did commercials. Mm. And I didn't really so like yet. the content, but the, <laughs> but the technique was really. I learned a lot from that, how to mm. get a message across in a short amount Quickly. of time. And the kind of music I grew up with,
3: mm.
1: they, all those songs were like three minutes, two and a half minutes long, and they were operas. You know what I mean? Mm. They were epic, but mm. they were still only two. And, and I think. You know, some of those things. You know, when there was a track that was like five minutes long, that like good vibrations or something. Yeah, that was a real exception. You know, and um, I, I mean, it's not that, and I love long tracks as well that really Mm. evolve over a long period of time. But I think the 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 idea of getting a getting not a message isn't the right, quite the right word, but the kind of a feeling across a a story story, or a feeling, an atmosphere, be Mm. you know, like. Oh, we have to have a long intro because we need to build up the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah you don't. You know, <laughs> I mean, if it if it makes sense musically, yes, but not just. You know, you should you know, let's try and build the atmosphere. Yeah,
2: and, and so, like in terms of sequence, I suppose starting mm. something. You know, yeah. like a minute long uh, instrumental. Yeah, you know, right. intro yeah. makes sense, but yeah. not within the yeah. span of like it's the third song, eight minutes long. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. You know,
2: but I quite like that you've brought that up. That is quite a talent to be Mm. able to tell your story very quickly. And especially with societies like constant ADHD. (laughs) I feel like I have millions of tabs open in my phone, on my computer. There's just so much happening. So you mentioned that obviously we, where you started was your family in actors and everybody was in film. Is that how you started well, my, my getting into? My parents were it?
1: actors, yeah. Okay, yeah.
2: So you just naturally went into that because they not, were in the not, field.
1: Not really. I wouldn't say it was natural. I mean, they were. I don't know how natural it was. It's hard to yeah. say, isn't it? Because, but it was something I was interested in. I was always, well, I was always more interested in music actually mm. than than that. But I wasn't very good at playing music, so that was my second choice. Really. Yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, when did you what was the click for you when you decided to leave the film side of things cuz I feel like film and music those two are tangentially connected yeah, right yeah. because you need a visual brain for mm. both and yeah. i can only imagine how your brain is very <laughs> visual um, considering what mm-hmm. you've done. When did you decide to 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 shift into into the music? Well, I,
1: I, I worked in in that in film mm. for a few years after I left college, but I just got really sick of it. Mm. Um, and I, then I just travelled for a while, and I ended up DJing in a, in the mountains in Switzerland. And
2: <laughs> was that your first ever performance that you ever did, like your first concert that you? No, did that?
1: no, it wasn't because when I was at school, we did school geeks and okay, stuff like. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But. Um, but this is
2: your first DJ. My, yeah, my
1: first <laughs> DJ, and. And that was great because I, I, you know, I wanted to get out of, I grew up in London and I just wanted to get out of the mm. city for a while and get into some fresh air and, be, mm. you know, nice landscape and things. So mm. I ended up there and while I was there, obviously I was buying records and stuff like that as, to be, you know, as a DJ and mm. it was very pop oriented. It was like a holiday resort, so it was like mm. chart stuff, which is, which is okay. You know, I didn't like everything I played, but I liked the experience of, oh. oh. The lights going (laughs) down I
2: told you what
1: happened. Uh, uh, So I I like the experience of making people enjoy themselves Mm -hmm. to music. Yeah.
2: So even if it's not servicing your,
1: I mean, most of it wasn't really my taste, Mm -hmm. Um, but that didn't really matter because it was functional, and Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that side of it. Mm -hmm. And then towards the end of my time there, the first rumblings of punk started. And that really kind of interested me. You know, I was, I, there were no records at that time. Mm. This was before the Ramones' first album and stuff, yes. and before the Sex Pistols. Yes. But, you know, I used to read about what was going on in CBGB's and Max's Kansas City, and I thought, this sounds really interesting. And, mm. and I got back to London at the end of the season. I got back to London, and, you know, the first punk gigs were starting to happen. And it was just a very exciting time. Mm. I thought this is a moment that I... that it's kind of opened a door for somebody like me who... Had musical stuff in my head, but mm. wasn't able to really translate that into actual mm. music. This, I thought, this was a moment that I could kind of somehow engage in, and I was very—I was had been in, into electronic music for a long time. Mm. So, at that point, I, you know, went back to work to earn some money to buy a cheap synth and a tape recorder, and that was it, really.
2: What was your first cheap synth?
1: Yeah, Corg 700s. Oh uh, wow. Wh- it's a great it's a really it's an
2: amazing one it, yeah that's
1: yeah, great and that and my first recordings that I released were just done with that and nothing else on a four tracks so all the all the sounds came from a 700s yeah. and so i think it's a great synth stuff.
2: how did you but, figure out how to play it was it just like trial by error and making a lot of mistakes uh, as you
1: went along yeah i mean it's quite a i mean i didn't re- yeah yeah basically but i mean it it's it's not you know it's not a complicated synthesizer mm. You know, you, you you know, you turn it on, and there are sounds there. You know, it's mm. not modular. You know, it's you know, there's and the, some of the switches are very basic, and mm. you know, it's quite basic. But then I got, I suppose, I learned how to get the things that I wanted out of it. You know, mm.
2: so before, I really like what you said about how punk kind of opened that up for you. Mm-hmm. What do you feel uh, like? How did you connect to that spirit? Because punk now is, of course, incredibly mm. different to punk then. But
1: I mean, it was, it wasn't, how yeah. did you connect? It wasn't. It was about the energy, you know. It was part. There was, I mean, there was the different kinds of punk. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's, you know, you had the Sex Pistols or the uh, or the Ramones, mm. who were like a proper band, and then you had the uh, thing early things like early Banshees mm. and things like that, which were people who just couldn't play, but just got up on stage and did it. And I think.
2: It was like it's the a, punk attitude. Yeah, it's yeah. about,
1: it's about the, more the ethic. Mm. I mean, I like, I enjoy. You know, I loved the Ramones' first album and and all those early punk records, the Dams and the Pistols. But mm. it, in the in the end, it was still rock music. It, they were all pretty good yeah. rock musicians, you know. And that, but I, I gravitated more to the things where people couldn't really play, but were getting in a conventional way, mm. but were getting really interesting energy. It was about the energy of it more mm. than the, the attitude and the energy rather than the music. I kind of, in my head, that kind of connected to electronic music, mm. the, the possibility of electronic music, because you, with electronic music, you don't have to be able to play an instrument to play. Mm. I mean, you know, I wasn't a keyboard player. I never was a keyboard player. Mm. It was just like, boo, boo, <laughs> you know. and yeah. uh, And, I, and I, those things, things connected in my head, and that's why I ended up getting the, the, the synth and the tape recorder. Mm. And it was a time when those things became much more accessible to people, you know, because... Up to that point, synthesizers were very, very expensive, and um,
2: yeah, of course, because the demand the... was yeah.
1: Well, they were you know they were made in small quantities, mm. hand built, and you know extremely high quality. But then the the Japanese, you know, Roland and Korg were making things that were like mass produced mm. and cheaper, and were not i mean you look at the cork seven you can see that it's meant to be like an accompaniment instrument mm, on top of it, an yeah, on top of a Hammond ad organ yeah, initially yeah. it's got little things for a music stand on the top mm. and stuff like that yeah. i don't think it was ever meant to be making the kind of sounds that
2: Well, oh, they they never thought that that would be
1: yeah, possibly I don't, yeah. the,
2: the demand as well for that. They didn't yeah. thought that would be popular. I, I think it was
1: like real, you know, the, the you know one of the you know things like well, you can get a nice flute sound or you can get yeah. a nice you know violin sound yeah. or something like that. You know. Yeah,
2: it was more for uh, convenience than yeah. than just. The, but I have the to say the after.
1: Korg 700s had some pretty weird shit on it. As yeah, like well. <laughs> what? It had like three different ring modulators. <laughs> <laughs> on it, it yeah. Well, I, it had some things on it that you don't that no other synth has ever really matched I, you know it's a really i still have it i love it and it sounds it's got really interesting features on it even though it's a really cheap kind of simple <clears throat> instrument there's a tons of possibilities in there. <clears throat> you
2: know when you decided then after that to pursue your own music mm-hmm. and support bands and and you know do your own thing was there a, a show that you played that it just clicked for you where you know necessarily for uh, like a vocalist mm-hmm. where where they found their voice was there a place or a time other than the gig in Switzerland mm-hmm. that you found you really found that place and from a mean,
1: live point of view you mean yeah well I mean what happened was it just you know there were quite a few of those singles came out around around 1978 mm-hmm. and I met Robert Rentel, who had also put out his own single, mm-hmm. at a Throbbing Gristle gig. Oh my god! You know, Amazing. classic kind of.
3: Because
1: <laughs> we were just all hanging yeah. out after yeah. the gig, and we as we were talking to you know I'd never met Throbbing Gristle before, but they, they were, it was like a really nice little kind mm-hmm. of everybody was very friendly and supportive. And I met Robert, and then you know we we got together a couple of times just to like talk about stuff. And then there was a guy, there was a company called Final Solution who mm-hmm. did they were promoted they were concert promoters. Okay. And they were doing a lot of the kind of alternative um, concert promoters, you know, mm. concerts in that time. They did, you know, all the early Joy Division things, and so you know, they were really great promoters. Mm. And they wanted to put on a gig in a small place called the Crypt in uh, in West in in West London, and they wanted to f- to kind of feature all those people who had made those electronic records. Mm. So they had Cabaret Voltaire, they had Throbbing Gristle. Wow. And they asked me and Robert separately if we would perform, and I didn't really couldn't really figure out how we would do it, and he couldn't figure out he mm. would do it. So we decided let's do, let's do it together, and that was the first gig we did. And then that was going to be a one-off, and then we got invited to play in Paris. Mm. There was a great club called the Gibus Club, and they were renowned for they did a lot of the early punk stuff there. Mm. And you would do like a residency, a three-night residency there. <laughs> And uh, and then through my connect, you know, I knew the people at the Rough Rough Trade because they were distributing my record and selling mm-hmm. my record. They put together a tour with Stiff Little Fingers, who were on Rough Trade at the time, yes. and Essential Logic, uh, mm-hmm. who were also on Rough Trade. Laura Logic was in X originally with X Ray Specs. Wow! Yeah. And they put and they asked us if we want to do this tour, and we said, Yeah, why not? You know, like you know, this is probably a one-off. Might as well. <laughs> Might as well do it. You know, so. And it turned out to be a long tour, it was like a 35 date day tour. It oh, kept wow. expanding because stiff little fingers just had just released their f- mm. their album, and it was like the first big independent commercial success, and mm. it was a chart album and so th- it was kind of supposed to be a very kind of egalitarian thing, but it, but, but, but they were really the stars mm. the, you know they were the, the real headliners. It was mm. supposed to be much more kind of flat, but they were, they, because they were much more well known but and and people really hated what we were doing pretty much you know really oh yeah
2: well what like vocally hated it well
1: more than vocally they threw stuff star- <laughs> i mean it was you know punk time but we you know we'd come off stage and we were you know there, were the, the, there was there was broken glass on the stage oh people God. were spitting at us and stuff like what? that What?
2: Uh,
3: i mean i mean that
1: I mean, it happened bef- it had just happened before with yeah. suicide mm. who supported the clash it was mm. the same thing for them mm. probably on a bigger level because the clash were much bigger but but there was always like two, one or two or three people after the shows who came back and said, "Oh man, that's you know that changed <laughs> my life." What, what's the synth? You know, because we used a backing tape with some rhythm stuff on it, and mm. I had a, my uh, my Korg 700s, and Robert had uh, a WASP synth, uh-huh. and Chris Carter from Throbbing Gristle had built him a Griselizer yeah. to go with his. <laughs> this uh, is
2: amazing, yeah.
1: And uh, you know, and it was alien to most. Nobody mm. really seemed most people really hadn't seen stuff like that especially mm. that generation they were all you know they were kids really and um so f- so f- for every thousand people who hated it was like one or two who, 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 but who,
2: that matters and that right? really matters
1: and, yeah. and it meant a lot to us you know and mm. so we didn't really care you know and we, we never left the stage mm. we were never bottled off so yeah <laughs> so we, used we... To look at e- we used to look at each other and go yeah no no let's keep going it's <laughs> time to go yeah,
2: yeah you know <laughs> But so how did you find the confidence then in terms of knowing that, finding that you could really listen to those three people? Because it's very Mm -hmm. hard to drown that out. And especially you were learning in the process of yeah. the audience learning as well, you were mm. both learning. You oh, were learning totally! About yeah, we hadn't, didn't and, have
1: a clue what we were doing,
2: and they were. <laughs>
1: and they didn't have but a I'm clue sure, what they were seeing. Yeah, you know, so
2: I'm sure they were like, "What is this?" Yeah. So, how did you find the confidence to then carry on and then pursue, you know, a life in that? How, how, where did oh, you? How did yeah, you find I mean, that I had balance? no plan
1: to do that. Uh, when I released the first single, I just thought it was going to be a one-off thing, and mm. I'd just get on with my life, whatever that was going to be. But, you know, it was, it did quite well. I mean, I was shocked how, you know, people liked it. I didn't think people would like it.
2: Did you like
1: it? Yeah, I was very, I was...
2: I think that's why. I was very (laughs) proud. I was
1: very proud. It actually sounded like what I wanted it to sound like, which was, that was the thing about working with the synthesizer. I could actually do, I could have an idea in my head and Mm -hmm. I got it onto tape, which I was never able to do before. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, so I didn't really know what to do. So after I put the first single out, then we did some of these live shows, and I was kind of pottering around and getting records pressed and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I got demos, and uh, I didn't really know what to do with them because I had no real intention to do be a label. I didn't, you know, didn't mm-hmm. want to be a record label. And then there's a guy who I knew, a guy called Edwin Pouncy, mm-hmm. uh, who was, who at the time was a cartoonist. He was the punk cartoonist yeah. for Sounds. Okay. And I kind of knew him just from hanging out, and he was. And he told me about this guy who was sharing his flat with him, a guy called Frank Tovey, mm-hmm. whose artist name was Fad Gadget. And I thought that sounded interesting, and I p- heard some of the demos, and I met Frank, and I thought this is something I can, re- you know, I can really relate to this mm-hmm. on lots of different levels. And mm-hmm. uh, so I said, let's let's put out a single, and that's really when the label started as a functioning label. Wow. Well, it was just me, but it was. No office or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. It was, uh, you know. So
2: where were you working out of from your from?
1: I was working for out of home. Um, I was. I did a bit of part time work for Rough Trade at the okay. time because that was growing so and fast. And you had
2: that relationship with yeah, him, and so from I, they had a little office, and I would yeah. hang
1: out there, and you know, but yeah, no, no, I just you know.
2: So when you started signing bands. And you almost assumed that position and it was natural, mm-hmm. clearly. Yeah. So when you started signing bands, how did you know what you were looking for? Or did you find yeah. it when you heard it?
1: Well, first of all, I wasn't signing bands. Yeah. Because there were no contracts.
2: Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't well, technically signing bands. We, yeah. just, we were just deciding to work together and split the profits 50-50. Wow, okay. Uh, you know, I would finance it in the, in the kind of minimal way that, uh, <laughs> you know, and yeah, that was it, really. So I don't know. I just I just had a feeling I had a, I suppose I had an idea. I mean, I was always very even when I was a kid, when mm. I started getting into music in the 60s, I was very particular about what I liked, you know. Really? Yeah. I mean, I was never a record collector. and never have been a record collector. Are
2: you uh, still not?
1: no. I'm not Why? a record collector. Because I don't like very much music. <laughs> there's not very Wait. much music that I... That, well, that, 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 that no. there's, uh, there's, there's not much... OK. <laughs> there's not, you know... I, I, Can
2: you imagine this is like, for a written thing? Daniel Miller does not like music. No, <laughs> but but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, keep, I'm, I'm, I'm just really, really particular. And I yeah. suppose
1: when I look back, when I was a kid, that, that's quite a good... That's quite a good... Um, that's quite a good... Kind of quite a good thing... If Mm. you're going to run a record label, I mean, I didn't think about it at the time, but if you just say, yeah, oh, yeah, what kind of music do you like? Oh, I like all kinds Mm. of music. I mean, that's possible. I'm not saying that's not possible, but it's not possible for me. I just, Mm. I'm really particular. I don't like having music around me that I don't like Mm. in my home or Mm. whatever. There's no point. It's just sitting there gathering dust. And Mm. So, you know, um, of course, I mean, music is the most, you know, for me is the most powerful, emotional uh, medium but mm. in order for it to be powerful and emotional it has to be p- very special you know mm-hmm. it can't just be any old thing you know.
2: So was there a band that you know obviously like New Order and Depeche Mode had made waves but was there a band that you feel particularly that didn't get enough attention at the time that you really.
1: Nearly everybody I worked with <laughs> didn't get enough attention. <laughs> like well you start with Fad Gadget I mean yeah. He, I mean, he got quite a lot of attention, but didn't get, you know... The Nearly qu- as much. You know, I mean, Depeche. The, I mean, for lots of reasons, mostly the music, but also the timing of when they started was mm-hmm. like perfect timing. Perfect and timing, the, yeah. And uh, people were looking for, you know, when you, know when, when you come to the end of something in music... Um, a phase a trend Mm. in music and people are looking for something looking something fresh that's a great time to do something fresh because Mm. then even if it's not great they were great but Mm. even if it's not great you'll get some attention because Mm. it's something different you know Mm. i remember it was the same and going forward like 25 years we started working with the prodigy in america Mm. and you could not get arrested you know they had there was the grunge time so they had two major things against them they were british mm. and they were electronic
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and um and just nobody was interested mm. and then people got bored with grunge and all of a sudden prodigy made a f- played at a festival in there's one radio station in america that played prodigy um called a station called the end in seattle and they invited mm-hmm. them to play at a grunge festival basically they were the only non grunge band playing wow. And all of a sudden people really related to it, you know, and MTV were there and they said, oh, God, there's something new. We're so, you know, we're sick of all these grunge bands. Mm. You know, we, anyway.
2: Also visually, I mean, yeah. what they looked like. In yes. The MTV no, I mean, era. I mean, I mean, I mean so they, they were great.
1: They were they were a great band. It's mm. not that's not the thing. And they were very different. It's just that Timing. at a certain point, mm. if you're different, you don't fit in. And then mm. the next minute, if you're different, you're exactly what people are looking for. Mm. It's 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 a, it's a strange phenomenon in music and probably yeah. in lots of other things as well but mm. but you know there's a lot of I mean you know there's I mean, I mean mean a lot of bands on mute I mean especially you know I always cite Renegade Soundwave mm. as one of the bands and it was partly their fault I have to say <laughs> why? They, what did they do? well they hated each other so much yeah. and they were so paranoid about of each other and they kind that, of imploded
2: effected,
3: um, it,
1: yeah. and so they, they never re- but musically they made some amazing records that mm. you know of course, people. There were a lot of people who liked it, but it did never got the kind of accolade that it deserved. I mean, there mm. are lots of them I could name. Eighty yeah. percent of the mute roster, I would say, that didn't get the attention they mm, they deserved. That it deserved. Yeah.
2: But do you find like?
1: Not that you deserve it. It's not about no, deserve. Yes, it's more it's, about you know that, that you know it's just like
2: that. The output is yeah, weighing up yeah, with yeah. with getting that attention. You know,
1: another another kind of period which was really bad for us was the Britpop era because mm. you know it was completely um, counterintuitive to what we were doing you know mm. it was very backwards looking it was very traditional it was very you know yeah even um, just the format of yeah, how those songs and, and then, and, you know people and, just yeah. we just couldn't get anywhere with any of mm. our music you know
2: but that's all uh, pretty much over now <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah but there's always something, but there's you know I'm not, listen, I'm not it sounds like I'm complaining i'm not I'm I don't really...
2: think it does at all. I feel like mm-hmm. there is so much knowledge that you carry with what you've done, mm-hmm. but in a very uh you come from a very different place because mm-hmm. you've lived through it. Yeah. It's very different if you are sitting here as mm-hmm. this exec who's taken this role over the last year, you've <laughs> actually lived through it yeah, but yeah. do you feel like there was one concert that you saw, one live performance, a band, or something that really shifted the way that you saw? live music and you, and you uh, maybe not from your own performance and people throwing stuff at you but
1: <laughs> but you mean something that I was involved with or something I mean of course, there were there were concerts I mean all the concerts well not all but a lot of the, you know I used to go obviously when I was a teenager mm-hmm. I went to gigs like yeah. what was
2: your first one what was my the first show that you the first you proper saw?
1: gig I went to when I was about 14 I guess yeah was uh, the Beach Boys
2: what oh uh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was
1: I was a huge Beach Boys fan wow Oh, and yeah. it was still the time when they were wearing their stripy shirts, <laughs> and Brian Somebody Wilson. told
2: him that was okay. Yeah. And <laughs> Brian Wilson
1: was not really in the band at that, or the mm. live band at that time, but he was kind of on stage fiddling with things.
2: Mm. It
1: was kind of around the Good Vibrations tour.
2: Where was that in London? As Hammersmith,
1: it was used to call the Hammersmith, Hammersmith Odeon, yeah. yeah. But now it's called something else. They keep changing the name, but it's still there as a great venue. Yeah. Well, great venue. It's still, a, it's still an important venue. Yeah. And you know, so that was you know, and. Uh, other you know well, I mean you know I saw a, it's hard to say but I mean I remember seeing mm. Faust wow. on stage around 73 mm. around that time it was much later on and they were just had like they were on stage and before they came on the stage was filled with things like TVs and pinball machines <laughs> and stuff like that and they were just miking everything up and playing mm. along and they were just tuning into the TV and stuff like that and and then the guy, and right in the front of the stage, there was a big concrete block, mm. and I didn't really know what the concrete block was for. And then at the end, they all walked off, and this one of one of their entourage walked on like a long black leather coat. And a pneumatic drill, Oh my God. and just started, <laughs> started drill, drilling, <laughs> drilling the concrete. And this was like bef- this is years before Neubauten or that's the, crazy. Yeah, and that was that was that was. I remember that as being a very that was like mind blowing. Yeah.
2: And you said that was in uh, in '73.
1: Yeah, I can't remember. Around there. Yeah, around '72, '73, and then you know seeing Can live for the first time, and you know just seeing all those bands, or so Tangerine Dream. Mm. You know, it was just the first kind of real all-electronic thing I ever saw mm-hmm. with their banks of, you know, Moog, Modular. That was incredible yeah. as well. You know, I mean, all those it's a things. The world.
2: They create a yeah. world. Yeah. And also,
1: but also, not just, you know, I mean, I was a huge Fleetwood Mac fan. The, this was a Peter Green version mm-hmm. of Fleetwood Mac when they were blues, much more blues-orientated, mm-hmm. and those gigs were amazing. And I saw a lot of the old blues guys you know, Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker mm. and BB uh, B. King, or
2: also when you were younger, do you find like that that you saw a lot of those bands? Yeah, it was when younger. I was younger.
1: Yeah, because like, cause all those British bands, like well especially Fleetwood Mac, mm. um, who were pretty big at the time, they always invited the the American the, you know the American the originals to come over mm. and play with them. You know, so it was great to that was great. I got you know, and there was there was a thing called the Rock Proms. Okay. At the Albert Hall. Okay. In this, I guess, late, you know, sixty-eight, sixty-seven, around then, and, and they promoted a lot of the black, you know, well, the original, you know, mm. blues guys, and that was I loved, and I was really, I still am, really into that, that kind of music.
2: So, w- when you were younger, was that was was that kind of music playing in your house? You know, bluesy, more, more. Well, it
1: was playing in my bedroom.
2: Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, Not your house. Okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, no, I mean, my my, my, my my parents were more into classical music mm. and, and things like that. I mean, they didn't have a problem with me listening to it. It wasn't like shut that noise mm. down or anything. I never got told not to play music, but that music, I was like, I mean, I'm an only child, so I didn't have an older mm. brother or to sister pass down to pass music. down, but yeah. I always used to hang out with slightly, oh, I mean, I didn't hang out with them, but the, the, the guys at school, were only two or three years old. Everybody was totally into music. So, mm. and they, for some reason, realized that I was into music. So they would play me stuff, and uh, you know, it was just that. Yeah. yeah.
2: And lastly, because we probably have to wrap up soon, <laughs> is there a band that you have at the moment that you are really excited by? Somebody who you particularly uh, th- that you want to get out there as as quickly mm. as possible, and you just mm. find that the landscape is not as it used to be, or just someone that's not getting the
1: attention. First of deserve, all, no. I wouldn't put records out if I wasn't excited about them. So I'm excited <laughs> about... Told you it
2: was a hard question, difficult Well, Well, it's easy. That's an, it's
1: it's an easy question to answer. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't... Yeah. Why would I... You know, we don't put out that many records. Yeah,
2: you, yeah.
1: And so well, I wouldn't particular. put anything out that I wasn't excited about. And, you know, some things are more difficult than others to c- get across, you know. Mm. I mean, our latest signings... Uh, our latest signings are uh, Daniel Bloomberg. I don't know if you've heard his yeah. music. He combines kind of classical, classic, not classical, classic mm-hmm. songwriting with free jazz, in a way, mm-hmm. or improvised music. And um, that's been, even though we got some good, you know, press and stuff like that, that's been more difficult than I thought. Mm-hmm. We just released uh, the uh, our first album with Karine. Mm-hmm. um And that's, you know, that's starting off quite well. Mm-hmm. So, you know. But I'm excited about everything I put out. I mean, life's too short to put out records that you're not excited about. Yeah, of
2: course. Yeah. Do you have like that mute? Do you feel like mute has a style, a particular style? Like if you have all the roster in front of you, do you feel like it all mm-hmm. has the same identity?
1: I don't think I think the identity is created in my, I would like to think. That, mm. I mean, musically, obviously, we're quite diverse. You know, you've you know, you got Daniel Blumberg on one side, or you've got Karim, they're very different, mm. really, music kind of genre. But I think, I think, I, I would like to think that what defines it is, 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 the, is the kind of the quality of it, you mm. know, um, and the originality of it. So mm. in my head, it all fits together. To some people, it's like, how can you have the Amanda <laughs> Golas and Erasure... How does that f- work in your well funnily enough, D.M. Uh, and the radio collaborating on stuff. Yeah, so exactly. Even, you so know, it works. Yeah. So I mean um, but it all means something to me, it all connects in my head mm-hmm. and, and the and the team that we we've got a great, you know, a great team of people at Mute over here in New York and in London. And, you know, while they don't necessarily get all of it when they start. They understand mm. They understand what it is. You know, They mm. don't have to like everything they do, but they understand why it's there. Mm. They, they understand the reason that for it. That there's a
2: place for there's it. There's a place
1: for mm. it. And you know, so it's, yeah.
2: Do you feel like there is an artist that you haven't seen live that you have wanted to see? Because it sounds like you've seen pretty much all of your bucket list people, um, but is there an, or maybe someone you wanted to meet and really chat to and pick their brain. Is there anyone?
1: Well, it's, it's a tricky one because the people, I'm a real fan. Of the things that I like,
2: yeah,
1: and um, I get very nervous when I meet those people. <laughs>
2: yeah, um, naturally, naturally. You know, I
1: met you know when we, when we started for first. You know, We've been releasing the Can catalogue mm. for twenty five years wow. now, and they were like, you know, Huge. they still are like, you know, musical total inspiration. Mm. So that took a while, to, and still, I'm still a, st- a bit of a, even after twenty five years, <laughs> it's still like. But I do like yeah, picking their brains. I mean, I you know, I, I, re- I, I vaguely knew the guys from Kraftwerk. I'd met them a few times, but I got to know Florian Schneider recently a bit yeah. better, and went to his studio in Düsseldorf, and I was oh my like, God. Uh, and, uh, oh. yeah, you know, and I I, I kind of lost the shyness. I just yeah. had to ask, well, what the fuck is yeah. that? You know, because there's stuff in there. What
2: is that thing protruding from the wall? Yeah,
1: you know, and uh, you know, so. It's I mean, when, when, I'm, when, I, when I, when I, when I, when I hear music that I really love, of course, I'm interested, even if it's not somebody who I'm, I'm who's famous or is mm. legendary. But yeah, I, I, you know, when I'm, if we're talking to an artist and we want to sign, for instance, mm. or we, um, we want to work with, of course, then I become really interested in how they make it and what the process is and because mm. that informs me a bit about where it could go. And I think that's the important thing. It's not like what, Knowing where they story, are now. It's yeah. more about, it's you know we like to work really long term with artists mm.
3: that's a good so point so it's very
1: important to know wh- where it's going in their heads you mm. know mm. and it's not just about well this is a great three tracks you sent us it's like okay that's but, but where is it going mm. and how do you how do you mm. make it and what do you need and to help you realise your vision. You know?
2: Yeah, but you have contracts now. You're not 50-50. <laughs> no,
1: no, we do 50-50. T- oh, do you
2: still do that?
1: Sometimes, yeah, okay. when it's appropriate. Uh, we do wow. 50 but we still have, contract, but we have contracts now. Yeah. And that's not because of us so much. Mm. I mean, when, I was, when we started in the first, I don't know, six, seven years of mute, I never, mm. I never spoke to a lawyer Wow. Either I'll, I didn't have a lawyer, and the bands didn't have lawyers. Do you think
2: almost that yours existed? And, your they didn't,
1: and they, none of them had managers either.
2: Yeah.
1: And it was. Wow. And, and the, all those art, most of those artists that came out of that period. Well, those you know, for, you know, for instance, Depeche and mm. uh, and then later Erasure and or Yaz and Erasure and the Bad Seeds mm. and um, we had, you know, over thirty years. Working relationships with those people, and um,
2: it's like I'm shaking my head because thinking of that, doing that now, I know it, it's, it's impossible.
1: It's no, it's, it's not impossible. No, it's but just, I'm saying
2: starting out like that yeah. now in this day and age, with I, so yeah. much. Yeah,
1: you know. I mean, it's, it's it's. I think, I think, rightly or wrongly. Mm artists think of labels as as, as a as an unsafe space shall we say because
2: yeah, they've been treated badly in the yeah, past and, a lot of art- yeah. and
1: there are and you know i'm not you know and, and i hate the term safe space but in this case it's kind of appropriate valid, absolutely and um you know so they want protection um from managers and lawyers you know there are i'm and i don't don't want to slag off lawyers or managers Mm. and there are good lawyers and there are destructive lawyers and there are good managers and there are destructive managers there's always
2: a place for them
3: yeah
1: when you have a good manager on board it's amazing Mm. to have that extra pairs pairs of hands on the team when you Mm. have somebody's totally trying to justify themselves to the artist it's a nightmare not
2: gonna work it doesn't work
1: you know and it just and you know and some managers are very protective of their artists and i'd like to have a but not just me, our team, we want to talk to the artist about the artwork. We don't want to talk to the manager about the artwork. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, Or the, or the mix or something like that. Well,
2: you go like to that. the source. Yeah. And, that's that's you know, the right way to do it.
1: It's really important for us art. to have that uh, kind of relationship with the artist. Mm. So in those early years, it was, you know, I didn't, none of us knew what we were doing. It was an amazing time because, you know, that's still right. that kind of punk ethic, even if mm. it wasn't punk music. And I suppose you could almost say it was a hippie ethic as well. I mean, most punks were people who were the kind of around, you know, who were there. The punk were kind of really were kind of hippies, Hippies, you know, or situationists, (laughs) you know. And uh, so it all comes from the same place. I mean, I wasn't really a hippie, but in the in the, you know, I didn't live in a commune and stuff like that. But but, having
2: that freedom of thought.
1: Yeah, it was just very natural at that time. You weren't, you know, it was it was kind of a natural thing of the generation that I came out of, Mm. you know.
2: I love that. That's such a wonderful point. Yeah. Thank you so much. No, you're we're welcome. We're going to wrap up. I probably could chat to you forever. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Got so many questions. But thank you for your time. No, for thank being you. Here and yeah. uh, enjoy the rest of the festival. Thanks very much. And I loved your chat yesterday uh, with Martin. Oh, thank it you. It was you were so great. Oh, it was, thank you. Like, I enjoyed it. You and you could see that you enjoyed it yeah. and you were enjoying it. So yeah. thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you very much.
1: You. Cheers. <laughs>
5: to New York to LA and then back to New York and yes. then a lot to London because of the record company that I worked for yeah. and a lot of the you know the, the original what what they called the New York Underground stuff or anything was the roots of the British punk thing mm-hmm. and uh, most of the bands I worked with were far more successful in, in Britain than they were in America at least in the beginning mm. and uh,
2: do you have an example of that that you find? Because obviously I can give you an example of which one was more famous, but who were you referring to that was more famous in, in Britain than in America? Oh,
5: virtually oh, most, <laughs> most of them. Uh, Blondie, certainly. The uh, Blondie was one of the biggest bands mm. in, in England, and they owned, many years later did they start getting hits in the U.K., and very, yeah. very few of them compared to like 20 in mm. England and uh, everywhere else outside of the U.S., and uh, the Ramones were far more influential and far more yeah. known in, in England than uh, th- than they were in the States. Suicide was equally hated everywhere, yeah. <laughs> except I at my house. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my
2: house. yeah, my house. Yeah, and,
5: and, and um, <laughs> no, people used to throw bottles at them. They used to open for Seriously? the cl- Yeah, they would open for the Clash and um, oh, people gosh. like that. And those punks were, you, you know, they, they were like really offended by suicide and they would throw bottles and and uh, were you
2: at those shows I was
5: I was at a couple of them but mostly I was in New York I I, I didn't travel with them Mm. uh, luckily because they they were pretty wild shows but I saw a couple I didn't see the famous one in Brussels that was recorded but I I saw them in England Mm. and, and that happened so mm.
2: so then you moved okay so then you were in New York L A yeah but York, this
5: is way, be, we, way we, 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 that. yeah you know I was doing that mm. uh, before we met okay and then I was produce I was living in L A actually at the time and I was producing
3: it was a time span we both
4: had different lives at different times yeah
5: and and, 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 and,
2: and, and so we both
4: did music at different mm. different sides of the world mm. you know what I'm saying.
5: So, so yeah. I, I was doing a country record okay. because I, I went. Um, there was a, a i i got a chance to do some country records. Warner's. The, I have a pretty eclectic background. Oh yes. Okay. I like it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and, and
2: in any and, and, and
5: in any case, uh, I was asked to do a couple of country records, and I did it. You know, because I I grew up on that and mm. everything else, and uh, that the, uh, one of them was to be recorded in texas and uh i went down there and it was recording this guy making his album and it was the kind of thing like it was an assembly line the guy who owned the studio who was the manager of the artist and mm. was probably pocketing most of the budget and <laughs> all of this kind of stuff would be herding musicians and he'd say it, it was odd because usually I have a relationship with most of this even session players mm. that I would use even orchestral mm. session players I pick you who I want thing. in the in the orchestra yeah. and but in this case it was like no you just tell me what instruments you want I said well I, I need a violin a fiddle okay. and and he some guy would show up and yeah. play the fiddle <laughs> and and so um, I said well we need background singers you know and so these two women were going to go show up and sing background on the record and uh I didn't know who they were. And they, it, on this particular record it was a lady named Bonnie Bramlett who was mm-hmm. a, a really good singer in Texas and Castle who was very much uh, a part of the all of the background vocals on a lot of those uh, those yeah. those yeah. records in Texas.
1: Amazing.
5: And uh yeah, that's where that's where we met actually. I was I was it's a real country western story. I was playing pool mm-hmm. out in the um you know out in the kind of the recreation area of the Mm. studio and in texas if somebody's recording it's kind of like an excuse for a party and everybody and everybody that was in everybody was in town (laughs) be hanging so there were about like 80 people in this room no okay 60 maybe 60 no 24 okay well well, there was a whole
2: 80.
5: It it's felt, okay. No, no, it felt like 80. <laughs> well, there, yeah, it, so be, there, there were a whole bunch of people there, including <laughs> bands that were in town. I mean, the, the, a couple of guys from The Clash were actually yeah. there. Uh, and uh, various different guys, mm-hmm. different singers from Austin and everything. Wow. And it would be weird. You'd go in and record the record and the guy would be out there and the band would be playing. And there'd be like 12 people lined up on the wall going, hmm, sounds pretty <laughs> good to me, Bubba. You know? And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, in any case, I was playing pool, and uh, Castle ended up playing pool with me. And I said, well, what are you here to do? Because I had no idea who was doing what. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, well, uh, I'm waiting for some idiot producer to show up. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> you
3: did yeah, say she, she, she,
4: <laughs> uh I'm just waiting, you know, for this. Some, Some guy is going to come in and be producing. She said it
5: with disdain. I'm waiting for this guy. You know, and, and, and.
4: Wait, Come on, the session's late. Yeah. Everything's you, late. You I'm going to be patient. here yeah. like five hours. Bonnie, the, are we going to get over with? You know, when do we get paid?
5: <laughs> it's always in tech. When do you get paid? Everywhere <laughs> in the and world.
4: And then I looked up, yeah. and what did you it, have to say?
5: Well, I, I said I'm the guy you're waiting for, <laughs> and 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 I'll 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 kick out whoever's supposed to come in next, and you guys do it. So they went in and did the session, and that's the and from there, throughout
3: the years, through, yeah.
5: we 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 met, and there was uh, and she helped me put together another record down there that they had me. Trying the same label. Okay. Had a, another fellow down there named Doug Som, mm-hmm. who had a band called the Sir Douglas Quintet, mm-hmm. and they he owed them an album, and I was a big fan. He said, and the guy who ran the label said, mm-hmm. well, when you're down there doing this Guy Clark thing, um, can you, if you find Doug Som. He owes us a record, and, and, and you can, you can produce it. the record you know, wow. contractually. He has to do it. And I know he lives down there somewhere, you know, but we can't find him. Yeah. You know, the, the message to get in touch with him was to leave, us, leave a message at a health food store. Oh. He'd call you back. So it turns out Castle <laughs> knew him. Bad. Here, you tell the rest of the story.
4: Well, yeah. I, I knew him immensely because mm. he's from San Antonio, and he and Augie and the band mm. uh, in that part of the world at that time were uh, just amazing musicians. Just a, a unique sound for that part of the world. Mm. So um, Craig said, oh, I'm, I'm looking for Dougie. I, excuse me, I call him Dougie. Yeah, and little I said, little Dougie Little Dougie <laughs> Rotten, yes. And he gave
5: his name when he found Discovered Punk. Yeah,
4: <laughs> So, uh, but it, you know, all of a sudden, uh, I got hold of Doug. They were all playing uh, baseball. So I went out and said, hey, come on you want to go do something interesting come on Doug there's somebody that really wants to see you mm. come on Doug looked at me and he said well okay and so they jumped in the car in their baseball outfits and we went down to the studio wow and, and
5: <laughs> yeah and I was there and I asked them if they wanted to make a record and they were all in baseball uniforms the whole band was still intact <laughs> and they were part of a softball team wow and um I said, you know, you owe owe your label a, a record, and I'm doing this record on on a friend of yours, and you know, I can I, I can do the record, yeah, you know, and, and uh, if you'd like, we can talk about it and see if I can get your sound and all of this stuff. I said, no, nah, it's okay. Mm. I'll call I'll call somebody, and he he called a. Uh, an old uh, other producer of his jerry wexler mm-hmm. and he said if jerry says you're okay we yeah. don't have to talk or anything we'll just make the record and jerry said i was okay wow. and and then we did the and record did. yeah, yeah. And, and then we started working together oh, okay. because of that record okay and then things happened and we just stayed together For the you last know 30 years wow. it's more than How 30 it? years oh, 30. It's 30 something 30 something. Yeah, from when, whenever 1979? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: You have to keep track. It's good. Yeah. 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 But it, does, it doesn't matter much.
5: Yeah. You know who were the most hardcore guys ever? Who? Were the Texas football players <laughs> that were the fans of the country guys. I was doing a country record in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and a fan of the guy who was the artist was Rodney, Rodney Crowell. Mm-hmm. And this guy is like, drove up. And created total havoc in our studio mm. because he wanted to, he wanted to be at the session, and it was this big old guy who played football.
2: You credited with discovering those, those iconic bands in history. Not, you know, not
5: the Texas Cowboys. No, but was, <laughs>
3: but,
2: uh, but you credited with those massive bands that also had fanat- fans, the, the, those loyal, crazy fans. Like you said yeah.
5: the Ramones. Well, the Ramones, the Rome the, Ram- the, Ram- like, the Ramones
2: had. The zero
5: site. fans when well, i first the saw them <laughs> you know as did any uh you, do you remember
2: a, the first time you saw them when
5: i first saw the remotes mm. uh yeah i sought them out because they were they had handed around flyers yeah and they've been having a press campaign uh with, of their of a source <laughs> and um in, on the lower east side in new york and they had contacted the fellow who was going to become their manager and it took him a long time to decide whether he wanted to be their manager or not because they're pretty difficult yeah. guys and um in any case uh there's a fellow named Danny Fields and, mm-hmm. and he he had been a long time and R guy and journalist and part of the Andy Warhol crowd and mm-hmm. uh, all of that and he was very very much a scene in New York mm-hmm. and and uh he was spreading the word about the Ramones and a couple of other journalists um who hadn't really ever even seen them mm. there was no demo tapes or anything like that it was just something they were saying this is really great <laughs> this is rock and roll so i was seeing i was seeing little things in <laughs> newspapers and showing them to my bosses at, at sire at the mm. company there were two guys that owned the company then it wasn't just seymour stein yeah and uh, richie goddard who was the guy who brought me up who's mm. a great producer in his own right was was, was one of the owners of, of that company yeah and uh I said, "Well, yeah, I got a chance. His
2: assistant I was Richie's assistant yes. in the very, okay. he, yeah, very beginning up there.
5: Sure. Yeah, and uh, they had no, there was nobody on staff at Sire. It was him, a secretary, and Seymour. And the first thing they did was hire me. And then they hired a promotion mm-hmm. person and yeah. uh, an art director. And they, they they got money because they had a hit. They they they'd struggled for years. Sire had a whole mm-hmm. history. Bef- before the ramones yeah. uh of doing really great music that nobody bought mm. uh and we're talking maybe they've been they were around from like 67 mm. or something like that and uh they had a whole catalog of records before the ramones mm. but um they had a hit of a band from holland that yodeled really <laughs> yeah it was called the 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 song was a novelty record called hocus pocus by focus oh. and uh <laughs> To me, and that's how
2: they made their money. Well, the it was
5: a real big hit in America. Wow. One of the, and it was nothing, the band was actually a real prog rock, mm. uh, you know, very good jazzy kind of players yeah. for that kind of music. Uh, and But I wasn't a fan of that at that time. But Hocus Pocus was really funny. It was, you know, the guy singing like that and a flute <laughs> playing. It was, yeah. it was just ridiculous. And But it went like top five or something in America. I don't know the wow. exact number. And so then you they they had this influx of money. So they said, we're going to expand. Have and, 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 okay. and so, you know, so uh, Richie brought me into the label and uh, because uh, he needed help with a band mm-hmm. that he was producing, a Climax Blues band. Okay. And the operative word was blues, which they had forgotten <laughs> uh, on this album that they had made. And he said, we've got to do this over again. and It's got to get funkier and grittier yeah. and more like the blues and um he char- he charged me with the um job of putting them into my little studio in Florida.
3: Okay.
5: Uh so he could have a holiday in Florida and um I would I would actually rehearse them and, and imbue them with blues from my old 78 your- <laughs> collection and all of this. So um
2: So you serve more than one purpose. <laughs> so I did that and then
5: that, then we recorded a bunch of stuff in my studio. He brought it up to New York. And then yeah. they went, you know, the feel on that was pretty good. So he asked me to come up to New York and, and, and yeah. continue working on the record. And then as things progressed, I decided I wanted to get a job and live in New York. Mm. And um, I was looking around at a couple of other labels. And that's a whole other funny story, how I almost ended up at another label except for Suicide. Oh, wow. Getting in between, the band yeah, Suicide, it's, yeah, it's, getting yeah. in there. But, yeah. um But in any case, I was. In this show,
2: suicide, and people will know what you.
5: Yeah, I I, I was fired before I was hired at another (laughs) label. I applied for a job, and they asked me who I'd sign. Uh, They sent me out to see some glam rock band. Yeah. Uh, And I didn't like them, but Suicide was the opening act. And And you uh, said you'd sign. And I said I'd sign them. You need to sign this band. And uh, they said, "Well, don't call us; we'll call you." So, uh, so I immediately said, "Well." I, I, the only draw. other label I know here is Sire, so I better get a job there. Yeah. So R- I got uh, Richie wanted me to work with him. So uh, so
2: then you said to Richie, I've seen the Ramones, or I've heard about them. Yeah. I've got a flyer.
5: Well, it wasn't even that. Yeah. It, it, it was that uh, I went down and saw them myself. I, I, I got in touch. I went, gosh, this is going really back into history. I have to get it chronologically. I'm out of order already. Yes. I was looking... I was in uh, Richie and Seymour because they'd had this influx of money and wanted to expand their label Mm -hmm. got an idea they used to take bands from Europe that American labels wouldn't release Mm -hmm. uh, from their sister companies in Europe Mm -hmm. like EMI would put out a band but Capital which was the EMI label in In America America wouldn't wouldn't release it they'd grab it for like A dollar and and put it out and see what would happen but it was all based on it being good music it wasn't just anything it would you know they they, that impeccable taste Mm. uh especially in their junior a&r guys and but in any case um (laughs) but in any case they um uh they they said well why don't you go scouting around looking for some new york bands because Mm. you know and i I would i talked to them i said yeah we could do the same thing we could take like uh somebody like lamont young and sell him back to <laughs> yeah. europe you know because i was always into yeah. electronic music and avant-garde stuff yeah. so i'd go down messing around at the kitchen and all of these other places and uh, lofts and soho and loft parties and go you know see tony yeah. conrad and all these people and i'd go and they would always go wow. you, you know don't do that and uh, can we sign a net peacock no you know and uh, and, wow. and all this kind of stuff but um Gradually, I'd heard that there was this whole scene mm. of really cool people that that, that were down there, and uh, I was to- I went down to find Patty Smith, and she had already had a long term relationship with the label that she mm. was signed with, and no, but then she wouldn't have signed with Sire mm. at that point. Sire was like rightfully. Sire was like a very very small label mm. that nobody had ever heard of. Mm. It wasn't. It became famous later, but. It wasn't famous yet because yeah. it didn't have anything anybody knew about. Yeah. and you go to you know you go to a record. Go, the Ramones didn't want to be on Sire yeah. Records initially. <laughs> you know they said, well, maybe if we don't get anything else, you know. Yeah. but and, and I said, look, I'll help you get a deal anywhere. You got, you guys have to. You gotta, you, you gotta, yeah. you, you've got to get your your music out there, uh, to Tommy wow. when I first met him. But 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 in any case, uh, I went down to CBGB's and. Talked to the guy who ran it, Hilly, mm. and I said, "What about Patty Smith? Is she playing here?" And he introduced me to Terry Ork and Richard Lloyd and Tom wow. Burlane and all the people down there from television that mm. were actually doing the booking of the bands. Yeah, and he said, "Here, there's plenty of bands here. We, you know." And he he was really helpful, and he said. Don't mess around with, with Patty. that, you know, she's kind of already spoken for and all that. But yeah. you should check out this band, the Ramones. And I said, yeah, I've seen some flyers from people like Lisa Robinson. I've heard of them. Yeah. yeah, and all of that. Uh, nobody's heard anything wow. that they did, but everybody says they're the saviors yeah. of rock and roll. Yeah. So um, it was arranged that I would go to their loft. It wasn't their loft. It was mm-hmm. Arturo's loft, Arturo Vega, mm-hmm. who was their art director. And they had just finished making a video. And it was a video of, um, uh, I think they didn't do it at Performance Studios. I think they did it in the loft. Okay. Or, or it might have been in Performance Studios. I can't yeah. remember. But the set was up in the loft, which was a big white sheet with Ramones printed on it really primitively. And yeah. I said, yeah, these, these guys are pretty pretty roots, you know. <laughs> and they, they played a couple of things, sort of. and But the energy was <laughs> so was also. so great... Yeah. That um, I, I thought that it, w- it was something that was was really worth pursuing, mm-hmm. but it needed a lot of work. They, 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 I also saw them in CBGBs. They didn't have the leather jackets yet. I know that they Pre-leather were they like, were jackets. like in Beach Boys surfer uh, shirts yeah. and stuff. And and they uh, they'd start a song, yeah, never finish it, <laughs> and, and and get really angry with each other and frustrated. And, and yeah, then all of a sudden the bass player uh, Didi would uh, go, one, two, three, four. And they'd start another song. And then it'd be, what song do you want to play? And they'd all start a different song. But, and the and it, crowd and it,
2: was still there with it. Well,
5: the, the crowd was no one. Yeah. The crowd at CBGB's in those days was the other band that was going to be uh. playing. It was literally... <laughs> do you remember? I, I, I would say there were probably six or seven people in the audience oh at, at the first time I ever saw them uh, that, that might have been punters. Every mm. And there were other people lined up on the bar, but it was all the people like in... Other bands. Mm. It wasn't Waiting even. For the it next was even one. before Talking Heads were there. Talking Heads played there first, mm. um, opening up for them. Opening up for wow. the Ramones for a show. The first show that I saw Talking Heads and the Ramones together yes. was. Um, there must have been about maybe 15 people in the audience or oh my something gosh. like that because
2: you know i had david on the podcast with yeah. annie who does his choreography as yeah. well yeah because this podcast is named after uh, this must be the place it's oh called yeah this must be the gig yeah and also david's stories from then he can't really remember much because it was such a blur it's the same
5: it's with me same, I, I you yeah. can't give i can't give you a specific date which yeah. is why when any of us are talking to journalists over the years yeah there's everything's conflicted because because you're going. What well, I saw you in <laughs> 1973. No, I saw you in 1975. You know, and well, there's and there's no there's, there, not there, really no, there, real there's no there nobody really did it. the 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 book that supposedly yes. the bible that Legs McNeil and the punk guys did is. Purely apocryphal, yeah, and because it's it's everybody's own personal recommendations. And they're hey guys, let's talk about me. And of course, I'm more important than anybody else in this bloody book, you know. So, um, but
2: I the- mean, you naming places like you know these venues were iconic. In terms of they that were era. dumps,
5: mostly. Max's what Max's yeah. was not was less dumpy. Yeah. Max's had an art vibe, and and it was I much prefer hanging out at Max's just because you could actually, you know, yeah, feel like you you were in the the Bowery space. where where CBGB's was uh, was was really now it's all gentrified, mm-hmm. but then it was um you know, a place where you could very easily get killed. I'm, I'm I, we we'd yeah. step over bodies at Blondie's. Rehearsal loft. My gosh. There'd be guys who would die in the, in, in bums that would die in the hallway, and you'd wow. God have to step over them to get to rehearsal. They lived across the street from CBGB. So when? Well, they they worked what there. What was they the didn't timeline
2: in terms of? So you did you work with the Ramones first, and then obviously Talking Heads
5: well they oh, were about hard. the what same the time? time the ramones were first were first we're, okay. we're first, and it took a while to actually get them i brought them into richie my mm-hmm. my immediate boss not mm-hmm. seymour mm-hmm. and richie had this whole idea that he was going to sign all these bands because i said look there's tons of bands there yeah. there's a blues band called mink deville there's these guys there's these <laughs> guys and you know and i'd go on and on about and of course suicide yeah and all this other stuff and there's the New York Dolls were still around but wow. they had lost their record deal and I said you know there, there, there's like if you want to sell a bunch of stuff to Europe here it is you yeah. know and uh and even Patty Smith uh but that, that was impossible mm. she she'd already put out her own little record which eventually did come out on Sire mm. as a reissue but uh she'd put a she uh, she, Robert Maplethorpe put up some money do, and they made yeah. their own little label with Lenny yeah. and her but but um But in any case, he said, well, you know what we should do? It's like the old days, because he came from the school of singles. Everybody had a single, and if you had like four hit singles or three hit singles, you'd get an album. And what would happen is your three hit singles would be on the album, and then the fastest record they could put together (laughs) in six hours would be the rest of your album. I I used to play on records, and I'd play on albums that you'd do the well, oh, we're doing an album today. Okay, well, the album would be a rehearsal and an album in six hours.
2: Why did you it know? go so quickly? Was it just because they didn't it want out? to
5: spend any money on it because it was an ephemeral business. Yeah. Nobody knew if any of these bands were going to go anywhere. Mm. But Richie would write hits. Mm. He was part of a songwriting team. And they do singles. And when they got a bunch of singles, they do an album or they do. This is the important thing. Compilations where they take a bunch of different people's singles and put them out. And he said, we're going to make an old time 50s compilation called New York's Finest, which was going to be all of those bands. (laughs) And he proposed singles deals to every one of them. And they all turned them down, including the Ramones. The Ramones turned down Sire first from the initial time that I brought them in. And then.
2: How uh, did you get them back?
5: Well, Tommy was, was uh, kind of like really down by the mm-hmm. fact that I, I, they didn't want a single still. And, and Johnny mentioned it in interviews and stuff. You can mm-hmm. look at them talking about it. But it's was like, well, you we don't want a single still. I said, well, these people are stupid. You, 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 at this point, you can't even make a single. You can only make one <laughs> big long song. <laughs> you know? And um, so then light bulb between Tommy and me. Well, we could make an album for the price of a single if you really worked hard. Yeah. And that was the premise that we then went to Richie... With yeah, that, that, you that so if you quickly. put up the money, and that's why this notoriously low budget and everything. It's not low budget by today's mm-hmm. standards mm-hmm. because today you can make a record on what we're talking into right now for yeah. nothing, but mm-hmm. then it, everybody had to go into a studio and you'd have to pay for all this big fancy equipment. So we it got to, more
2: time, was money then, yeah, it, yeah, it was the by bricks, the hour, yeah.
5: And so we had a very limited budget to make an album. Uh, the, the, and then the band got slicker and we rehearsed and they they went around to a whole bunch of different labels and they got auditioned at different things. Mm. I think Blue Rock label, which was uh, Johnny Winter's label. Mm. Uh, the Steve Paul, who ran uh, some clubs in New York out of mm. that label. It was part of Sony. It was CBS at that point mm. that became Sony. And, and uh, they were turned down there. Danny brought them there. Danny wow. had started to manage them. And when Danny started to manage them... Uh, Seymour got more seriously into it, the other half of sire because Danny was a known mm. like guy with ears and guy on the scene. They
2: could trust him. And,
5: and he, Danny developed a very good working relationship with Seymour's wife at the time, Linda, And the deal sort of became if she became co-manager of the band, then they Mm. were signed, and that's that's how they got on the label.
2: So did you? But you were the one who really had their back almost from the start. You really did.
5: Yeah, I mean, and they said that it's in some beautiful thing that they printed for the. 43rd anniversary a couple of days ago with the quote from Tommy that really gives me a lot of homage which uh do you feel like you haven't
2: had that over the years because I feel like you've done so much and there's been so many names thrown out you know over the years and the things that you've produced and worked on uh, we mentioned Suicide Richard Hull there's been so many things that you've worked on do you feel like you've you've been honored enough over the years like in terms of how much work
5: you put in I'm more honored that mm-hmm. I came and played here at yeah. Fest on our new album at my age <laughs> that, that's that's the honor that I that people yeah. are being responsive to my music producing is like a craft mm. to me and I never expected to get any kind of homage for producing mm. you know I, you I, I'd produce. be very hurt if I didn't get a little bit yeah. <laughs> of homage for something I wrote but 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 uh mm-hmm. it's it, for producing it's like Well, if the band got noticed and what they... My job would be to, as a producer, to Mm. get what they wanted to get on out out Mm. in a format that people could listen to the Mm. way they wanted it to happen. Yeah. And I could make suggestions. I mean, it was usually... Until I get to orchestras later on, mm. and back to my day job of, of, of "quote unquote" classical music, yes. uh, I was far more educated musically than anybody that I was working with in pop. Mm. You know, so and I'd have ideas, and I I'd, I'd talked to George Martin about this as well because he yeah
3: you did that he, yeah
5: over. yeah I, I, yeah he he did the same thing yeah. he would he came from a classically trained background and he would try not to step on toes the same thing as me it's like. He didn't go tell mm-hmm. the Beatles, uh, "We want to put you should put strings on yeah. it. yesterday. They, they came to him and said, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a story that I don't think he told that often. Mm-hmm. They, they, they came to him and said, "Paul, it was Paul McCartney came to him and said, um, we want to do something special. We want, there's got to be something about this song. It doesn't sound like a real band song. And George said, well, what about strings? And he was like, anathema, you yes. know, I, I don't, because strings on a pop yeah, record well, with these syrupy, crappy right. things, course. you know. And, and um, George said, well, no, there's other kinds of strings, you know. There's like the stuff like Vivaldi and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and stuff, and, and you can do stuff that's really cool. And uh, wow. so, well, let's give it a go. So Paul went around to give it a try, skeptical, and they came up with "Yesterday." Wow. You know, so that that kind of helped. And
2: look at it's, you know, it's But a tiny but that was
5: still a craft. <laughs> George didn't write yesterday. That was their mm. song. He he brought it Elevated to, he it. helped them mm. bring it to the place where they didn't even know they heard it in their head. Mm. But it's kind of what they implied they wanted mm. and that, and that that that's what a producer does do you
2: feel know. more comfortable then cuz obviously you have history with classical music do you feel more comfortable in your production role or producing your own material well i'm much
5: happier producing my own material or something i wrote okay. because the thing is um it's rewarding either way mm. but 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 it's just very simple In in classical you write it out mm-hmm. and you in, in my cases I conduct it usually and hey let's talk about me I was saying you about that before mm-hmm. hey it's my it's on my shoulders so you just do what I want yeah. and, and and there's no discussion so it's coming out of my head and I'm trying to pull something out of me mm-hmm. you know and and so I, I get much more of a sense of satisfaction yeah. when that happens in Consequently, and she will tell you, um, Castle will tell you, who's been sitting quietly while I've been traveling, <laughs> um, that she produces me. She co-produces mm. all the things of my own because uh, what, what she does is stop me from getting... Uh, basically disappearing up my own bum in in, in the studio with too many classical (laughs) ideas that's
2: what what you need you need it's but it's very hard to discern between what you know is right for your ears and what's right oh no no she'll she'll
5: she'll tell me that really sucks (laughs) and and she she, i mean don't you
2: yes (laughs) (laughs) tell me about your first concert experiences like what was the very first concert that you both saw separately yes I was I
5: I, I was told you were going to ask that yes and I honestly can't
2: the podcast but not the main thing
5: I honestly can't remember well I can remember the very first thing but it's going to be really not very rock and roll when I was a kid um my 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 father was fascinated by classical music which and my mother played it Mm. and I had a talent for it that they nurtured when I was really young and when
2: did you start
5: about four
2: what did you start playing?
5: The piano by myself under I'd sit under the piano and hear what my mother was playing and she was a big fan of opera and she play played opera. And so I I'd, I'd go back after she'd go away to do whatever she would go to do around the house or shopping or whatever. Yeah. And, and uh I'd sit there and I'd pick it out. Yeah. You know? Cuz your ear
2: was already tuned to that. Yeah, That's yeah, amazing. and and, and yeah. um
5: you know, reaching over there and picking around and and she uh, immediately got me lessons and everything. The first gig I ever saw—I <laughs> w- w- was telling it to the optometrist yesterday when he was fixing my glasses because he, <laughs> he's an opera fanatic. Was uh, Renata Tibaldi and uh, Richard wow. Tucker and uh, Verdi Mass Why Ball? Is it not rock and roll.
2: That's rock and roll.
5: Well, that's that's it. When the I was a kid, spirits. I demanded. I, I have a demand for opera, and wow. the, the first record I had was Van Carion conducting Beethoven Six. You know, but then. I don't want to get into that, because we... Hey, let's sell our record here, you know? Okay.
2: Talk to me... So, wait, I want to first, before you carry on... I don't on, know
5: what your first record... Yeah, what uh,
2: was your first uh, show that well, you No, saw? Buddy
5: Holly. Buddy Holly. Yeah. How old were no, you? No, the thing is... is we, um, Buddy Holly's studio, she would. What happened
4: is, is I lived at that point in time with my family in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. My, my father and such uh, in that time. And I have an older brother and sister at that point. And so... Um, they, our family always had been lovers of music, and mm. I had, my sisters and I had, brother and I and sister had sung together at home, sit mm. on the porch, do what you need to do. Mm. Uh, fortunately, we were in uh, New Mexico, and um, my older sister <laughs> said, okay, I'm going to, she was old enough to date and do all that wonderful stuff, and she said uh, bo-
5: Bottom line is she was dating somebody in Buddy Holly's, Holly's band.
4: band. Oh, but, you know, Oh, so you got? A, has you got tickets? Uh, no. What happened is, is that went studio. I went to the studio. My sister oh was, my oh, they She didn't. They were going to go somewhere else, shall we say? And she, <laughs> said, oh, <laughs> we'll just leave it at the studio. Well, there I sat,
5: and yeah, wow. her, her first concert experience was hearing playbacks in the studio at Norman Petty Sound, where they were trying to entertain her, so they so they could so they, they they could go out and and and, and they, make out, you know. And, and <laughs> you know? And
2: <laughs> sitting in the studio. <gasps> That watching is,
5: whatever they were doing
2: how and if you, i didn't know
5: what i was doing. that's rock and roll at the
2: time yeah no that's I absorbed it you know what i'm saying
5: you should you should have adapted the name before the real peggy sue fender there is a woman named peggy, peggy sue fender actually really? yeah, yeah you should have been peggy sue fender. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but
2: so tell me so now after that is there a before we get into your music that you're doing they, together they, which, they
5: can wait over there yeah all, i mean we Literally, could. all I'm probably going to do is the homage to Henry Cowell <laughs> and Lou Harrison while they film it. But yeah. go, go ahead. Yeah. So
2: I wanted to ask, was there a show that both of you saw, maybe not necessarily the first show, but that one where, you know, often you talk to vocalists about finding their voice. Was there a show that made you find your voice in the style of music you wanted to create in the things you were even doing, you know, back in the in the day with... Blondie, Talking Heads. Uh, well, the suicide. first really rock
5: experience. Uh, the first things that, uh, gosh, uh, yeah. well, we're, we're talking that... about sneaking up at windows and lo- listening to Slim Harpo and stuff oh, at juke wow. joints. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up in rural Florida, where on the other side of the tracks, yeah. as I became a teenager, y- is where you'd go to get somebody to buy you alcohol, <laughs> and, and and then you'd hear the juke joint music playing up there mm. bluesing. it's the same thing you had it in texas lightning hopkins is one of the first things you mm. yeah but um one of the one of the first rock and roll things i heard and one of the first experiences mm. was there was a um the first one there, there were many i mean mm. there, i i saw bands that would come through at the armory shows and the, you'd see the Shangri Las and the bobby fuller four wow. and the, sam the sham and everybody who had a hit would tour in these packages yeah. uh but but the thing is that uh what really impressed me was there was a pop festival, and I was older. I'd already been back and forth to New York once. It was um, a bunch of bands played on a ba- flatbed truck in a, in a racetrack uh, <laughs> in, in Florida, and they had oh, wow. a pop festival. Okay. And it was one of the first pop festivals. And the bands that played were The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, mm-hmm. Blue Cheer, oh, wow. uh, Jimi Hendrix, The Mothers of Invention, and... Um, I'm trying to think. There were, there were, there were a couple others, but that, that, that's, those were the main ones. So
2: they all had to go take one by one? And one by one. They'd they have bit. one
5: stage, which was on the back of a truck, and well, they'd play. And Blue Cheer... It impressed me, actually, mm. the most, although all of those bands were really yeah, impressive. Yeah, every name. Yeah, they, they were all... That, that, if you imagine going out. for an afternoon out, and you're going... And those are the bands. Those... That was it. Mm. That was the show. Mm. And it and and it wasn't a huge amount of people or anything. It wasn't mm. like Woodstock. The same people who did that, Please. it was the prototype. The the promoters of that did Woodstock. end up doing the Woodstock oh, wow. Festival. Wow. But and, and I'm still in touch with them on Facebook and all of that stuff. But in any case... Um, Blue cheer was probably the loudest thing I'd ever heard. Mm. And it was like a revelation. And I didn't hear it again until the Ramones. Well, it was a three-piece that was incredibly loud. Mm. And um, they were so dedicated. Because they were loud, they they had very big amplifiers. And the drums weren't very well mic'd. But the drummer was bound and determined Mm. that he was going to... be as loud as the rest of the band mm. and he was banging the shit out of the drums you know and and he was flailing away and playing all this intricate <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff that was very very punk actually yeah. and then finally I was on the side of the stage and um they they walked up the guy walked off stage threw down his drumsticks and held his hands in the air and they were like bloody, bloody. to a pulp and he was smiling like i've done it tonight <laughs> and i said that's rock and roll. So it was like Iggy pre Iggy. Yeah. It was that kind of thing. But is that
2: the, do you feel like that's the concept? Like, cause you, the stories that I'm sure you have of all the different shows that you've seen, both of you in your history of being in the industry for so long, is there any moment where like something happened at a show and you were like, what is my life? I cannot believe this is, this is happening. Like that kind of story with the bloody hands.
5: No, that that wasn't, I I know that 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 was important to me. And I said that this is why rock and roll is really cool. Uh, But for me, it was the studio always. My my first experience isn't that. But but the thing is that, and that's where I knew I wanted to end up. a, because my hands wouldn't get bloody, <laughs> and, 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 and also because like I... like
2: rock and roll, but not being... Well, I'd rather manipulate
5: roll. the electronics, and, and, mm-hmm. and actually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a combination of what eventually was my love for synths and, and, and recording. But I don't think there's a show where it was like the St. Paul the moment, you know, of... Um, you know Eureka I found mm. it that was the closest was probably that big show where I realized rock and roll was a social force that was more important in my era than uh the, the music I was studying every day yeah mm. and, and that I was going to make point. that turn to rock and roll mm. that without that show was probably it I wasn't that impressed by the McCoys or something like that I was very impressed by Blue Cheer and Frank yeah. Zappa and and Jimi Hendrix especially i mean jimmy hendrix was like so another you, you alien of oh, 18 do you know something I like that's that?
3: You oh, gosh, that's true,
5: that maybe is. 17 i i don't remember what year it was so, 67 or yeah. 68 yeah, yeah. But, but, but but yeah but 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 in any case uh, yeah,
2: that's
5: where I know. yeah okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, i know because yeah. you're just
2: saying now you also saw jimmy when you were that age as well
5: yeah well he played texas on that same so, tour well he, he opened for the monkeys you yeah know? Well, yeah well, you, you, what? her band well davy jones and mike nesmith financed them to go out to california uh, uh mike nesmith was from yeah, texas that, and yeah, that was a, her, her 67 band. My 67 band yeah what
4: was that called there was a band called the children it was okay one of the first psychedelic bands that actually got signed yeah california so we took a hearse and crossed the country carrying our equipment <laughs> we,
5: we were talking about this last night because i was doing this thing with jimmy gestures yeah. everybody yeah. thinks so oh, well you're dropping all these famous names and everything when you're talking no. about these people but they're not everything was so it was so localized mm-hmm. and so, no. such a small scene yeah. in yeah. every yeah. town
2: so going from that to what are you working on at the moment for both well,
5: of you we're working on playing the album that we're putting out on the 10th of May that everybody should buy uh, yeah hey what is it I, I learned it? that I learned that from <laughs> Sam the Shaman the Pharaohs buy my album yeah
2: what is it called the album
5: what Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs the a, was, woolly bully
2: whoa. no, no uh, uh, the, the <laughs> album coming out on the 10th
5: oh uh, 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 it's, it's 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 the canon yeah.
2: Right. Let's start from the beginning. No, I'm right. following. No. The, okay. <laughs> okay. No. The, no. the album that's coming out on the 10th oh, on the tenth right? is, is, yes.
5: is um, it's called the Canon. Okay. And it's part of the Anthology of Interplanetary Folk Music, Volume 2. Okay. Which follows up from Volume, volume 1, one. <laughs> surprisingly. Yes. <laughs> sure. Which came out a few years ago.
2: Wonderful. You and know. that's a collaboration between both of you? Or did you produce... That was the first album that Craig
5: and I ever... Well, that's Cas- Castle producing. That's mainly... We, we put albums out under Castle's name when she yeah. actually yeah. wrote it okay. and, as the driving force. And we put them out under my name awesome. and, uh, when, it, when it's me. Mm. Uh, Craig but, like, but,
4: did four albums on me. In, mm. in, uh, in, uh, all through the all years. All throughout the years. Yeah. But that's because I'm a, f- a folk storyteller. Mm. We well, can yeah. say it in a lot of aspects. Yeah. Mm. So that's sort of my different movement at that time. But mm. like I said, that's where things started uh, changing.
3: And, yeah. you know,
4: mm. one, of the, one of the things to me was to work at Jimi Hendrix Studio, then in New York City.
2: When was this?
5: Electric Lady, Electric, yeah. yeah, she, she uh, Yeah, but,
2: where did, When did you work at Electric Lady Studios?
5: We did that Sir Douglas Quintet album there, but you've changed wow. the subject. Oh,
2: sorry. Okay,
5: so, so, so the point being.
2: Oh my God, I love you guys so much. You're it's so great to see this. Yeah. <laughs> I wish people could see it because they just hopefully they can pick it up by hearing it. But uh, yeah. the connection that you have. Is really wonderful. It's a strange one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> where did you want talk to talk about our We
5: produce project. each other constantly, all Come, the time. Literally, as yeah. we're talking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's right. just our nature. <laughs> it's it's it, wonderful.
4: You know. the, first, no,
3: wait, the
2: first
5: record, let's talk about Nomos. Yeah. Let's about there. Mm-hmm. Well, Nomos is... Uh, <laughs> well, I don't want to go through the whole story of why it happened. We've no, said yeah, that a whole a bunch what? of times. but But how Castle helped immensely in the production of that was that we had no budget whatsoever to do the record. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, John's label, John Fahey's label was um, impoverished, to mm-hmm. say the least, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, possibly even more impoverished than Revenge International is. Mm-hmm. But but, but on, on a good way, because they do art, yeah. they, 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 they don't have huge budgets for mm-hmm. things. But um, that doesn't mean they can't make brilliant records. Mm-hmm. But, you know, both those labels do. So, and, and I'm not a guy for huge budgets anyway. But in any case, uh, what were we going to do? It was supposed to be an orchestral record mm-hmm. with orchestra and drums and these newfangled synthesizers and all of this stuff. And... Um, we had to scrap the orchestra, we had to scrap the drums, we had yeah, to scrap well, the all, all stuff. Yeah, so I said, we have to do it on mm-hmm. synths. So, so we, yeah. have, we have to go find a studio that we can pay X amount and have an infinite amount of time with these very fiddly instruments. But, yeah. And she knew a studio from a singer-songwriter mm-hmm. that she knew in Texas who had a big country hit oh, nice. and couldn't follow it up. It oh. had one of the biggest hit records who of all the, time.
2: What was the record?
5: Well, it was a fellow named Willis oh, Allen Ramsey. He, okay. he he wrote he wrote a song called he he has one of the best debut albums ever. Wow. If you're a record vinyl fanatic mm-hmm. and you like '70s singer songwriters, yes. get the Willis Allen Ramsey album. That is such because, a great He's amazing, and and the song he wrote, that. which is nothing like the way it came out yeah. on the hit, was a song called Muskrat Love for the mm-hmm. that the Captain and Tennille covered, and. Um, he was all of a sudden rolling in the dough you know and it was like well i guess i better write another one of these and i better make another album well he's still making that album yeah. to this day but but in any case he let us, a, he let us use no, his we studio use it. we had, to rebuild we had it. We, he'd gotten frustrated because he didn't he'd torn his studio apart mm. and castle called him knowing he had a small studio and she said well look we've got like zero dollars but can we use your studio yeah and he was like uh I tell you what, I'm going to sell all this crap that I tore apart on the floor. If you guys can solder it all back together <laughs> again, you can use it. And then as long as I can show it to sell it, you know, um, and um, that's what we did. We, we put a studio back together again. That's where uh, we made Nomos. did
2: you work in the studio on that, on Nomos?
5: Not, well, for, uh, an immense amount of time for back then, probably about 10 days. Yeah. Yeah, 8 or yeah. 10 days, but, uh, yeah, which, which it's is... It's like is, not that is,
2: long, but obviously... No, in those days, you'd make an to. album
5: like in three days. Mm. Oh, yeah. you know And
2: once
4: it started it just sort of uh, came together but again
5: it was all charted out and everything already it okay, was it wasn't, so you were, you it, it wasn't like making it in. up you know right. so so, okay. so it, yeah. it just had to be executed mm-hmm. it, it wasn't it, it wasn't uh it was it was
3: just another
4: world
5: mm-hmm. it was it's charted out to the point where i recreated it and yeah uh, Thirty years later, mm. 30 you know, years
3: later. We, we we goes. have the
5: same <laughs> we have the same sounds loaded into yeah. our computer mm. um, that we played the other night. Wow! Uh, well, we didn't play Noma's yeah. the other night. So none of those sounds, surprising. I'm sorry, are on mm. the new album. There's very few, although it's the same synths. Mm. We use the same synths oh, on so. on the new album that we did on on the old one, plus a couple of new ones. So, um, you're going
2: to be in in terms of the promotion for the album. Are you going to be touring together and playing more?
5: Well, we have we have been doing it with nomos for a long time we've played the canon a couple of times in Mm -hmm. europe experimentally
2: how's that gone it's
5: gone everybody loved it it was amazing and it was great to see here people were applauding the songs and they were really (laughs) but they were and and they were really into it and it was things they'd never heard before that you know yeah there's been no radio airplay no internet release other than one kind of teaser track which is nothing like the rest of the record uh, you, you know but
2: wait, so wait it's coming on the 10th of May 10th of May okay. yeah. I want
5: to hear it now uh, yeah <laughs> and, and, and um, we played the whole thing the other night, the other night here Amazing. and we played it in Antwerp and we played it in Barcelona and a couple other places yeah. maybe sure one or two others but yes. strangely enough everybody was really into the concept of it and they treat it it's kind of like a fruition of the Ramones it, it, it's it's uh, seven pieces but it's actually one long piece you know (laughs) but but we don't yell at each other in between each each one we could it would be interesting yeah Yeah. Yeah. so do you have
2: a favorite place that you've played then together a favorite city or a place that you feel like you they understand you and understand the work that you've
5: we like very much where we are here. Moogfest, fest mm. because it's aficionados and, and, and people that are into it. We like playing New York. Oh, New you fun. know, and we love playing Italy. Italy's it's strange
2: Italy. to why Italy. I well, Italy, know.
5: strangely enough, Italy is the one country where "Nomos" is almost a pop record. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it was. It was really? one of the most. It was one of the most remixed records in the Italian dance oh scene gosh. when it first came out. Dance. And uh, a couple of guys put it on these huge compilations, mm-hmm. and they they actually uh, appreciate. Us very much in Italy, mm. uh, which is it's strange because I have produced a lot of Italian yeah. opera singers as well, but yeah, but have. and Ennio yeah. you know, Morricone and people like that that are Italian yeah. mainstays, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, but who? you know, <laughs> come on, you, you. What about Ennio?
4: Oh, Morricone I mean, we've worked with him. Yeah, He's yeah. In totally. A couple of chapters. But, well, that's a Marconi whole other. And keep on going, and how I for the well, not I also love that part of the music too mm. but never in my life did I think I would stand with Pavarotti mm. and he would say what so?
5: no know? don't do an accent don't imitate his
4: accent yeah I know tears were but he you know he and I he and I got along like when did
2: you when did you work with Pavarotti? Uh, two,
5: 1999, 2000, two thousand, two thousand one, wow. something like that. We worked on a couple of things with him, yeah. but he was very very sparsely recording in those days. Mm. He actually did not like to record towards the end of his life because mm. they kept throwing all these pop records at him. Yeah, and, uh, and it he was it w- trying
2: to get everything out of them. Out of him, yeah,
5: yeah, day. and they would they had he did all oh. these charity records which were for a good cause, but he hated the songs yeah. usually, and it would be. We t- he'd auditioned songs while we were working and it was like uh um what is this song? Castle, what is this song? And he says, Does it really go like this? <laughs> and and there's go, yeah, he's like- I would rather sing Brahms than this shit. And, and and the worst thing for an Italian opera singer is to sing something in German. Yeah. yeah so uh, that's yes, about as so you know. that's his worst. That song has to be pretty damn bad if he'd rather sing Brahms rather than it. Like yeah. Working
2: and producing these <laughs> artists that just have had, you say their name and you are immediately transported into a time, whether you or not you met you they were formative in whatever year when you were younger, and you're saying these italian composers and ennio and pavarotti is do you find that you the experience of producing artists like that helped you with your own your
5: well own yeah because a well. lot of the things like on, on some of the things that i did with pavarotti i actually wrote the arrangements and all of that so so it, it, it gave me mm. a real and i worked on on one project that he was on with a, an a, a, with Ennio Morricone and Louis Bacalov, mm-hmm. So for my chops, I learned Italian film, film music really quickly, wow. which I didn't know. Mm. You know, And there's a style to composing Italian film music, which is partially based in Verdi and Puccini opera, mm. but it's not. It actually goes into another kind of formula, which arguably Morricone is one of the inventors of it, and Bacoloff mm-hmm. as well uh, was. Uh, Bacalov's no longer around. But... Um, yeah, so you learn from everything. I've learned from the Ramones. I learned from suicide. We learned from.
2: What is the. the cause I nothing
5: like... is forbidden, everything's allowed. You know, basically, that's it. You know, just to paraphrase wrongly yeah. uh, 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 somebody's yeah. uncle. You yeah. know, but. Um, <laughs> yeah.
4: Everyone, open the door. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to fall down. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and just take it in, but, you know, just keep out
2: it open Mm. up and if you have to close it carry in your heart forever Mm. I feel like so many creatives in this day and age because they are watched you know social media you watched and you're under a a microscope now they're so afraid to fail in public because of what what happens to their career uh, but I love that sentiment weirdly both of your sentiments uh, uh, work together in that using that Uh, And making a mistake is so beneficial for growth.
5: But sometimes it isn't a mistake, it's just that you're a million miles ahead of the public. I've had people like like when the band Suicide came out, Mm. uh, very few people were, the people. Who, who got it really got it you know or the people who really got the ramones went out and started their own band to be like them be like which it. is what's really important that's the whole thing about yeah. the folk music of rock and roll um and it's the same thing but it just gets down to the thing is that there's only one bit of advice mm-hmm. and it comes from a country singer from somebody castle work with willie nelson she was mentioning and it's yes you know if you're going to make a record, you got to have something to say. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the other way around. He goes, you can't make a record unless you got something to say. You know, and that's basically it. So if you've got something to say, somebody will listen to it. It may take them 40 years. It may take them, you know, 100 and some years. Nobody knew who Bach was after he died till somebody discovered him in 1830. You know, I mean, those who knew about it, most every composer studied him to death. You know, Mozart was studying and Beethoven was studying, but nobody ever played it, Mm. you know. And then it it took somebody with guts to turn around. Mendelssohn goes, you know, I'm going to play this thing. You know, I don't care what anybody says. Mm. And people are going to tell me I'm out of my mind. And it's stranger than Scott Walker for my era. And and, and he went ahead and did it. Mm. And uh, people still didn't get it. But other people then said, Mm. hey, it's worth playing, you know.
2: And going forward, just to wrap up, I feel that
5: would have been one of the concerts I would have wanted to see. Oh, what about yes. the concerts we didn't see? Uh, well, the, I mean, the, the, I love
2: I love yeah. asking that question. Yeah,
5: the, 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 one the, that Mendelssohn, the Mendelssohn's saw. Bach would have been one. Mm-hmm. Beethoven in eighteen oh nine or eighteen oh eight doing his solo concert at a little theater in Vienna that we visited, mm. where he did oh, Symphony Number 5, Symphony Number 6, right? <laughs> I mean, he did, like, his greatest hits all in one night as wow. premieres. The, like, the first opening, like, we did our album the other night. He, yeah. did, he did, like, the, the, some of the most iconic music in Western history all in one go. And from all the accounts... Of what happened that night, it sucked. It was, there was it was under rehearsed. Uh, but God,
2: you, we would have loved to know, be there. But I wouldn't oh have cared God. if
5: everything was out of tune and they missed all the cues. Exactly. I, I would have wanted, wanted to, to hear there. that. Yeah.
2: But so the album's are on the tenth. Yes. Where can people find you? Like, how do you have a website? Do you have? Facebook? Oh well,
5: there's there's us on we're on Facebook mm-hmm. under my name usually, okay. and and we're on. Uh, you know the best thing to do to, if you want to find out about the record is to go to revenge international's address okay, which yeah. you hopefully you can tag this with in yes, in, in, the, in an, in an intro podcast, or something definitely. and um you can find our booking agent somewhere in Switzerland uh, in a hidden place uh, Shakti, <laughs> and you can call him up and if pro- you want us to play. <laughs>